Hi, and welcome to the Canola Watch podcast. My name's Jay Wetter. This is the second in a five-part series recorded at Canola Palooza in Lacombe, Alberta in 2019. The topic for this podcast is insects. My co-host, technician, and all-around good guy is... Uh, Sean Haney from Real Agriculture and Real Ag Radio. And my guests are Hector Carcamo with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lethbridge, James Tansey, the Insect Pest Management Specialist with Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture, and Keith Gobbert, who is a Canola Council of Canada Agronomy Specialist. We start with Keith. There was a big year for flea beetles. Why were they so bad this year, Keith? Well, you know, it just depends where you were at, actually. So southern Manitoba, I heard some really scary stories about spraying multiple times there. But, but flea beetles are a problem for somebody in canola agriculture every year. Our biggest problem is we can't predict in advance to tell you where that is. So it's it's our most consistently inconsistent insect. Hey Hector, what are you doing about helping us uh, estimate where they might be in a given year? Well, we are looking at um, a variety of stories with flea beetles. Um, we don't really have a monitoring program for flea beetles um, because we pretty much expect to find flea beetles somewhere uh, every year, uh, but like Keith was saying, they're not bad everywhere. You know, it, uh, why we have so many flea beetles, why they appear to be so bad, um, more likely the combination of conditions that we have this year where we've had dry conditions in some areas, uh, we, we had very, very little rainfall and the canola has been standing and staying at a, a vulnerable ceiling stage for, for quite a while. That probably is compounding the issue. And, causing uh, a lot more damage than we would see every year. Because Keith, what we saw this year is people were frustrated, right? In some of the really, really bad areas, people spraying two, three, maybe even four times, I know for sure three, and still saying they're still coming. Yeah, so it's a numbers thing. Uh, The two flea beetles we worry the most about, cruciferous and striped, are not native to here. So as soon as we say they're not native, really the biggest concern there is is that they don't uh, have any real natural enemies to keep that population in control. So with flea beetles, it's a numbers game. They overwinter as adults. They wake up hungry. Your canola is probably not ready to feed them when they wake up, so they're still hungry when your canola is coming out of the ground. And rarely is, rarely are flea beetles, sheer numbers of flea beetles, the issue. Typically, there's a stand establishment issue. There's a, a growth rate issue. There's something else happening with your crop that's slowing it down and making it more susceptible. So despite the fact we use a seed treatment with an insecticide on each and every acre because this insect is such an issue, you'll still run into fields where a foliar insecticide is required to keep it below an economical impact. Given the Saskatchewan situation, was it what kind of year was it there? Uh, it wasn't great. Uh, yeah, Saskatchewan had some had some flea beetle issues. Uh, certainly, um, a lot of the early seeded material suffered some frost damage, uh, and that coupled with heavy flea beetle pressures drove the thresholds down a little bit and and you know, required some remediation, uh, as Keith mentioned, with with foliar applications. Uh, we actually had enough foliar application where there were shortages of some of the class three insecticides. Uh, for flea beetle control um, and some heavy damage consistently uh, in the canola growing parts of the parts of the province, particularly in the south. Uh, we're seeing a mix of flea beetle species, as mentioned before, so primarily striolata and cruciferae. Um, typically a mix dominated by cruciferae in the south. Um, 
little more heavily pr uh, uh, prevalent in the north uh, with, uh, with striolata, depending on depending on individual sites. So, striolata, striolata are the is striped. the striped, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cruciferi is the crucifer. Yeah. Can, can I add something quickly? We uh, we monitor twelve canola fields in our area for uh, studying various insects, and and out of those twelve fields, actually only one field has been sprayed for flea beetles. And I've been keeping a bit of an informal survey of people that come to talk to me at the booth today, and less than half actually have sprayed for flea beetles. So, you know, it, it sounds really bad, but I think it's not as bad as it sounds. And w for the people who didn't spray, what, is there a, a consistent trend? Were they the later seeded crops, or what was? What are you finding? Yes, it appears that, um, you know, contrary to the recommendations that we make sometimes, that they should seed early. If they were in, in an area where they have this trifle beetle, which is the dominant one in central Alberta, they they planted um, around the second, third week of May. So the neighbors actually helped them control the flea beetles because they went to the earlier planted fields. So I was asking them if they bought them a cup of coffee to compensate for it, you know, and, and being a trap crop for them. On that note, Keith, do you think a recommendation on, on seeding date uh, we may consider a slight change in that as a result of flea beetle pressure, or is one factor just not enough to swing that? So probably not. If you talk across, if you talk to an agronomist across crops, most of the time, unless you've got a frost susceptible crop, most of the time you're going to see a yield increase from seeding early. Assuming that you've got soil conditions that are that are appropriate to get onto the field, you've got a limited amount of time to get seeding done. You might get rained out. You know, I don't think I'm going to be brave enough to say you've got grid conditions, you're after, typically I use a certain calendar date where spring frost shouldn't be an issue. Seeding early tends to give you increased yield. However, if something sets your crop back, and if it's canola, you're setting yourself up, uh, setting yourself up for an issue with flea beetles. So it doesn't matter whether it's just too light of a seeding rate, whether it's crusting, whether it's seeding too deep, whether it's trash covering the field, if something makes the crop establish a little slower, odds of you having a flea beetle issue are, are uh, increased dramatically. So it's essentially a race against time to try to get to about the four leaf stage where there's typically enough plant material to provide salad for the flea beetles that they can't, they can't ha impact you in any significant way anymore. And if something slows you down or you only have two plants per square foot or, or worse, fewer, um, you're going to have to jump the gun and, and, and aggressively control those flea beetles. And the farmers that are the most worried about flea beetles tend to be the ones that likely didn't do as good a job of controlling a bad outbreak the year before. So you see some sensitivity to the issue and more discussion about it probably 12 months after you really needed to do it. And often that area moves so you don't get as much practice managing the insect as you could it's not an every year problem everywhere so we get surprised any comment on the seeding date and the flea beetle situation yeah i think it was coupled with i think issues with low rainfall so i mean we, we had you know as, in, as indicated uh, a slow crop development um possible effects of, of insecticide uptake because of that and and really really protracted uh, uh, periods of, of young plants being being exposed at their most vulnerable stage to the to the flea beetles so yes uh, what's really was what's really striking me as odd this year is is uh, still finding cruciferia activity in the field you know when as a rule activity should have waned 
but uh, but there's still a great deal of activity in the in the field. I haven't heard of, of recent uh, in the last couple of days uh, accounts of uh, of insecticides going down for them, but still it's still seeing them as of, as of a couple of days ago. So. In general, James, what are the best options for flea beetle management in canola? What are the things that, if you, if you stacked up a few practices, what would be the best? I think well, obviously the flea, obviously the the, the seed treatments are, are tremendously important, and and, and crop rotation I, you know, with with most specialists very important. I'd probably rank those uh, as two. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, about seeding rates uh, recently, and, w- and with reduced seeding rates and some of the previous evidence of increasing rates contributing to more resilience in the, in, in the crops to these animals. Um, what this trend towards reduced seeding rate actually means for populations, I think still remains to be seen. It's a subject of research, so I, I'll maybe defer to Hector on this one. Yes, um, seeding rates has been one of the topics of interest for a long time, and in fact there is anecdotal evidence from before the time of uh, seed coatings and insecticides. Uh, in the Pacific Northwest, they used to just seed canola very thick and then let the flea bills thin it out and the, the yields would not be affected. And we actually have some data now. We are uh, on year two of a test that we have across the prairies uh, and we are looking at the interaction of seeding rates and uh, the type of insecticide management, whether you use seed coatings or foliar insecticides. and. From the first year's results, this is preliminary results, but it looks like if you plant at very high rates, and I'm talking about uh, more than seven plants per square foot, so that would be more like 10 or 12 plants per square foot, very high. The, the treatments that have no insecticide, whether foliar or seed coating, would have as high a yield compared to the, the ones that have the standard insecticide seed coating treatment. So as far as the yields, you, you, it looks like you, you're able to get away with planting at a high seeding rate and not worry about insecticides and flea beetles. And yes, we did have quite a bit of uh, pressure, mostly from the crucifer flea beetle. Um, as far as the populations of uh, flea beetles, obviously if you're not controlling them and uh, decimating them, you're going to see them again the following year. So I think the trend for lower seeding rates, if we tried to tie it to any one factor, it's increased seed cost. So the number of traits and the genetic improvement that we've made the hybrids that are available mean that those companies want to be paid for their investment and we we know that you can get a really good crop out of relatively low uh, plant stands so reseeding typically is two plants per square foot even across the field if you got more than that you're probably fine Uh, we've recently lowered our our standard recommendations to five to eight plants per square foot Uh, the canola council used to talk about seven to fourteen plants per square foot when they started putting that recommendation out, canola seed was probably a dollar a pound. Uh, so, you know, growers have naturally tended to say, how do I get the best return on the investment that I've put in on seed? And if they can do a good job, you know, the average seeding rate is likely four and a half pounds to the acre. Uh, we've got growers working on planters with relatively low plant stands. So, you know, but if you mix relatively low plant stands, however you came across those stands, um, and then add an insect pressure, well, there's not that much food for the insect to eat. So you're going to see stand defoliation from cutworms. You're going to see low plant populations as a result of, result of flea beetles. And if they remove more than 50% of that leaf area, you should see a yield reduction. But We're going to switch gears to a different insect. Hector, you've been doing some work on ligus and on cabbage seed pod weevil. Um, do you 
it's we're getting into cabbage seed pod weevil season, particularly in southern Alberta and I guess southwest Saskatchewan, James. Um, what uh, I mean, any change in the threat or anything of, of note heading into this season? Uh, yes, we just uh, completed some studies on the effect of managing cabbage seaport weevil at the early flower stage and how that might affect ligus bugs at the early fall stage. And as a result of that study, we also looked at uh, how intensively you sample a field for cabbage seaport weevils. And we have a kind of a basic recommendation on how to sample a field for cabbage seaport weevils. And the, the, the basic take home message is that we would uh, like to ask people to, to sample the edge of the field, say, say wherever you happen to approach the field. So you sample the edge, you, you take your 10 sweeps, but you, we'd like you to go into the field also and repeat that sampling at least, say, 50 meters or 150 feet into the field. And in addition to that, you should also try to visit an area of the field as far as possible from that first area and repeat that. So we know that if you do that, so you have four samples, and that is going to get you into the ballpark of making the right decision about the economic thresholds. Now, what are the economic thresholds? Um, we are suggesting a threshold of around 25 to 40 weevils in 10 sweeps. And why do we give a range? We know that th- there's two reasons. One is that if for some reason somebody's in a hurry and only sweeps the edge of the fields, hopefully they do at least two or maybe even four spots, then they should keep in mind that the weevils there are going to be twice as abundant as they are inside the field. So then you should use the higher end of that threshold of 40 weevils in 10 sweeps. And if you, uh, if you are a grower that is very concerned about beneficial insects, then they can also, also consider using that higher end and, and protect some beneficials. And if I might talk for a moment about that, just quickly, we are finding again that um, little black parasitoid called Diolcogaster claritibia that you may remember from last year. We were finding not very many caveosipo weevils last year, but we were finding lots of these little black parasitoids, and it turns out that this is a parasitoid of diamond back moth larva, and we are seeing it again in the fields that we've sampled so far. So it's, it's good to remember that uh, you, you do have that range of threshold, and if you have all these parasitoids there, you might be helping to build up the population of beneficial insects that might help you control diamond back moth, which, by the way, we are seeing a few more in the samples that we've collected so far. So the neat thing about Hector's work was we typically have told agronomists in the past to do 10 sweeps, 10 locations in the field, and often agronomists uh, realize how much time that's going to take, and they end up doing one set of 10 or two sets of 10 in every field and they kind of get a county average and say well if you're flowering now you better just go spray and Hector's numbers say that 90% of the time if you do four sweeps you'll get the same answer as if I as if it was I think it was 16 sets of 10 in that same field so you know giving an agronomist a little clearer direction of how can you get more accuracy for less work uh, that means it probably will do the four you know especially if those numbers are different across the field you do the first two samples and and you don't get numbers that are very similar you know knowing that 90 percent of the time four sets will give you a, a really accurate sense of what's in the field is is great information to pass along are you trying to share that mes- message james in saskatchewan about the scouting and absolutely the- yeah yeah no, so incorporating the new thresholds um, and just overall, I think what we're seeing for transfer cabbage seed pod, we will at least last year in Saskatchewan, was that numbers were down. 
we haven't begun our survey yet, but it'll, it'll be coming up any moment. Oh, down pre- relative to, pre- to previous years. There, there may be some, some factors that are contributing to that. The dry conditions in Saskatchewan, I mean, they do pupate in the ground. If they have difficulty getting in the ground, getting out of the ground, that, that could influence their survival. Uh, and there's, there's been some discussion about cold hardiness and, and I think uh, evaluation of supercooling temperature. I think some of that work is, uh, is proposed. So there's a few, a few questions that I want to follow up on. One of them is this edge effect. Uh, where do the cabbage seed pod weedle, weevils overwinter? Are they hatching in the spring and uh, in the field edges, or where, where are they? The, uh, uh, cabbage seed pod weevils they overwinter as adults, and they they prefer to overwinter in tree shelters and field margins. They look for areas where there is uh, high residue, and um, we we have looked at super cooling points and cold hardiness of of cabbage seed pod weevil. We know that they they can tolerate up to minus six degrees Celsius. And the good thing for them is, I guess, if you're a cabbage seed pod weevil, is that you usually overwinter in the microhabitat below the leaf litter residue in the field margins and tree shelters, and the temperature there very seldom gets past that uh, little temperature. So they survive the winters fairly well. The length of the winter might be a problem for them, though. So they, they might come out uh, very weak, and then they might not be, uh, uh, be as pesky as they, they can be. So they, they usually do not overwinter in the fields, they overwinter in the leaf margins and the tree shelters. Is that why their, their region or their range, I should say, in Western Canada has been primarily the, the southwest prairies where the winters are maybe a little warmer, or a little shorter? Yeah, that's, that's my, my guess as well, uh, you know, what's limiting their, their northern movement. Uh, another reason that I found, found them uh, uh, some years ago but was uh, uh, the tops of berms. Uh, the tops of grassy berms. I, I had really terrific emergence of cabbage seed pod weevil from those areas as well. Uh, part of my thinking with the, with the cold temperatures too is is the last couple of years have been characterized by real hard cold snaps, without much snow cover early on in the winter, and and the possibility for the for for the cold temperatures to penetrate deep into the soil without without that insulation, and maybe have an effect on those on insect populations, or those insects in particular, with with their relative sensitivity to cold temperatures. Where did they come from? Uh, originally from Europe. And then, so Keith just got back from the International Rapeseed Congress. Is that what it's called, Keith? IRC. Yep. Yep. Were you two there? No. So, but every time someone comes back from Europe and shares a story, it's usually related to pollen beetle, which is another European pest, I think. So, why do we have the cabbage seed pod weevil and not pollen beetle in Western Canada? Do we know? That's uh, that's that's um, I don't have a hard answer for you, but no, the, I mean the, the, the pollen beetle's been documented in Nova Scotia, as I recall. Uh, but not in Western Canada, and thank goodness for that. So Yeah, there, there is a, a surveillance program for pollen beetle. Uh, it's led by Dr. Christine Narona out of uh, PEI, and they do have pollen beetle in, uh, also in Ontario and Quebec. Uh, we, we have, uh, so far, we have not detected it in the prairies, and hopefully we'll keep it that way. And why do we have one and not the other? I think it's just random factors. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, you'd assume that they'd be hitchhikers somewhere, somehow. Uh, soil sample plant material, you know, when do you get an introduction? We have Swede Midge in Ontario, we don't have it here, thankfully, you know. Uh, the tone at, at uh, the international meetings was that Canada is a pretty good place to grow uh, canola. We don't have the wider range of insect pressure that, that some of our competitors have. Uh, and we also, because we don't use foliar insecticides as frequently, we have much less of an issue with insecticide resistance. So they have some issues which are limiting their acres based on loss of tools or very few tools to manage some of these problems as well as things like stem flea beetles so we think 
defoliation is bad from striped and crucifer. Well, imagine if you had the same type of insect, and not only could defoliate plants, it could dig in and, and burrow into the stem and cause you damage there as well. Uh, we're, we're a lot luckier than we realize. Yeah, the, uh, just to add to that, the, in, in Europe, a lot of their canola or Aussie rape is winter Aussie rape, so that's why they have stem pseudorhynchus, uh, similar to the Cabiocipo weevil, or they have stem free beetles. Uh, if we had winter canola here, we would start shifting our populations and species composition of pests to, to a different type. Is that because that matches up in when the adults are most active, or is it more because the stem is there for eight, nine months of the year and it's just exposed for no, that much I, I think the crop cycle matches the, the, the life cycle of the insect well. Yeah. And if, yeah. we had, if we had winter canola here, we probably would have more serious problems with the, the, uh, the um, cabezipor weevil, probably. And, and looking at the European examples as well, I mean, with, with cabbage stem flea beetle, we, we're, they're beginning to experience resistance to class 3 insecticides, the pyrethroids. Uh, they, they've seen that with pollen beetle and with cabbage seed uh, pod weevil uh, in Central Europe for, for some time now. So, Hector, in the PNW where they do have lots of winter canola in you know, states like Washington and Oregon, is, is there more cabbage seed, or cabbage seed pod weevil there then? Yes, they do. Yeah, they, they have pretty high levels. And... Uh, you know, first we had the Cabezipo weevil in Vancouver, and then it moved to the Pacific Northwest. And I suspect that from there it probably moved back into the interior of BC and then into the prairies. Now, tell me, you alluded to it earlier, Hector, about the relationship between spraying early or spraying for cabbage seed pod weevil and then the Ligus population later in the season. What's that relationship? Oh, yes, that's a very interesting uh, question. So. Uh, growers often ask this question, so if I spray for cabezipo weevils at the early flower, am I also cleaning the field of ligus bugs? And the, um, the answer to this is a little bit uh, confusing. Yes, you do reduce the number of ligus bugs in those fields, but the number of ligus that you had there were insignificant, so you are reducing them from an from a, uh, insignificant level to an even more insignificant level. So the, the message is that those fields that get planted early and are at risk of cabezipo weevils are not going to be at risk of ligus bugs in general because ligus bugs they have they have two generations sometimes even three generations depending where you are and they have the first generation outside then they move into canola so those fields that are planted early yes they are going going to get hit with cabezipo weevils but more likely they're not going to have the ligus bugs so if you are spraying the field that has low numbers of cabezipo weevils, because you think you're, you're controlling the ligus bugs, uh, think again. Uh, it's not a good idea to go and spray for a bug that is not at the correct timing. So for ligus bugs, there's no other option, but you have to monitor at the early pod stage, towards the end of flower, and yes, you're going to get a pretty good workout getting into canola at the early pod stage, but there's no other option. You, you, you gotta go in at that stage, and that's when you need to count the ligus bugs. Sweep net as well? Sweep net as well, yeah. And with the LIGOs, there is a, just a, a little bit of an advantage that you don't have to go too far into the field, luckily, because LIGOs, they don't have that edge pattern. They come into the field more like rain. All right, I want to wrap up with just one last thought from each of you on, uh, is, so far this year, um, is there something happening that really reinforces the current recommendations? Uh, you can answer that question. The second one is, there, is there something new that you learned this year that you think farmers should know about? So you could do one or the other or do both, but James, uh, any, anything that reinforces what we, what we know? 
I, I'm actually going to go to the go to the opposite end. Yeah, and, go for and, it. And uh, uh, with uh, the uh, the at least perceived greater success of some of the late seeding stuff, at least seeding material this year relative to the early seeding, uh, which was it was a, that was honestly a bit of an eye opener for me, uh, and because of frost pressure, because of flea beetle pressure, and coinciding with you know moisture. Uh, but uh, yeah, of course, the, the the traditional is early seeding, so that, that that was a surprise to me and a lesson for me. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to kind of just what pops into my mind now. And I, I love coming to these events because I get to talk to growers and I get to see what they're doing and and what their concerns are. And something that I realize now, I think there is room to do a lot more research with flea beetle management, especially when it comes to this uh, idea that plants that have several true leaves, why do you really need to spray them when they have uh, three or four true leaves? I would I'd really like to see an experiment where you look at that and see whether are you really protecting yield by spraying on that, that late when the plants might thinking with canola. I haven't seen any data, but I think canola, once it has those true leaves, it should be able to withstand sharing that foliage with the flea beetles. Sharing. I like that. Yeah, so I don't know if I've learned anything new and exciting this spring unfortunately a lot of my territory was dry uh, so with flea beetles you know it, it goes down to some of the the oldest information the canola council has ever recommended which was seed shallow and slow down uh, basically the message is try to get your crop off to the best start possible and you know in the absence of rain that probably becomes even more important but there's no, there's no shortcut for getting a crop established well. And a number of growers have looked at the factors that affected their canola crop and said, you know what, when I rush this project, when I seed as early as I possibly can, I get poorer canola crops. So uh, some of them have said, you know, seeding later gets me out of the ground faster, a little more uniform, I have less flea beetle troubles. It's not a bad option. How many seeding days are you going to have? That's the only question you got to ask. Good. Thanks, guys. My guests for the podcast again were James Tansey with Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture, Hector Carcamo with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, and Keith Gobbert, my colleague with the Canola Council of Canada. And thanks again, too, to Sean Haney, co-host, producer with Real Agriculture, realagriculture.com, Real Ag Radio. For more on the dial-clogaster insect that Hector talked about earlier in the podcast, I wrote an article for Country Guide magazine called Protect the Mighty Microgastrinae. It is posted on their website at countryguide.ca, and that's country-guide.ca. You can read it there. I interviewed Hector about his observations. For more on flea beetles and any other insects, you can go to the insects section at canolawatch.com. Dot org or canolaencyclopedia.ca. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jay Wetter.